we've been talking about the supremacy of God, and today we're specifically looking at it uh, in this phrase, among all the nations. And John Piper in his book mentions that uh, he kind of gives the overall uh, purpose. He says that God's great goal in all of history is to uphold and display the glory of his name for the enjoyment of his people from all the nations. That we are to enjoy him and his name. And all the nations are too. And I was uh, encouraged that before when I've taught, I've talked about my definition that I've been crafting for 20 years and keep changing, but I was encouraged that it's similar to Piper's, that at least I think I'm on the right page or getting close. Uh, But I say that God's purpose is to bring glory to the Godhead by displaying his character and bringing people from every nation, tongue, and tribe into a transformative, obedient, and intimate relationship with himself. And we're going to talk about this later, but knowing God's purpose informs us of what our purposes are. And so I think it's really important that, that we let these go deep into our, our soul. Okay, our, God's purpose is to bring glory to the Godhead. Our purpose is to bring glory to God and to enjoy Him. And we bring glory to Him um, as we bring other people to Him. But also this idea... We bring glory to God as our lives are transformed. Every time we're obedient to Him. Every time we make a choice that's pleasing to Him, that's in line with Scriptures and His commands, that glorifies Him. So through simple things of life, by working hard to apply what we hear in church or to, in the morning, we choose to, to sing and praise God on our way to work. We choose to pray for our neighbor. We, pr- we choose to call out to God and say, God, give me patience with my coworkers. There, you know, <laughs> there's some difficult people and I can't do it on my own. Lord, I need you. That glorifies God. Anytime we're in relationship with him and relying on him, that pleases him. So on this message, the last thing I want to communicate is that, oh, the only way you can glorify God is uh, by being a missionary and going overseas. So, you know... Bo and Cindy and the Harlands, you know, oh, you know, if you're not us, then you're nothing. <laughs> oh, thank you for laughing. Yes, that's an absurd, absurd idea. All right. That God is glorified in so many ways in our lives. And each of those is, is important. And that also our obedience brings glory to him and our relationship with him. He delights in us. It brings him glory And isn't it amazing? It brings God pleasure when we are in relationship with him. When we shoot up a prayer to him and say, God, I need your help. He's pleased by that. Turn to your neighbor and say, my life can bring pleasure to God. Just say that. All right. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about that. As we're talking about the God of all creation, the God who spoke and things came into being, and yet my obedience in little things.
praying for my neighbor while I'm washing my dishes. That brings pleasure to God. So he really is amazing. Well, today in particular, we want to look at this idea of the missionary task of the church. And the question we're going to tackle today is, is the missionary task of the church reaching A, all the countries or all the nations of the world, B, is it reaching all the unreached peoples or all the ethnic groups, or C, is it reaching as many individuals as possible? Okay, A, B, or C, what's, what's your answer? Which one do you think it is? Okay, well, hopefully by the end we'll have this figured out. All right. So, like in the Great Commission, we're going to talk about that. It says, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And you guys know already, what's the Greek word used here for nations? Ethne, from which we get our what English word? Ethnic. So we know, it's, we often say this, it's God saying, go and make disciples of all the ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the question is, what is the meaning of ethnos or ethne? And it's not as simplistic as we might like to make it. Uh, that I, I learned from Piper in reading his book. Actually, there's the word ethnos, when it's singular, can mean a people group or a nation, but it, it never means uh, individuals. Okay, And then the plural of ethnos sometimes means individuals or Gentile individuals, and sometimes it means people groups. And the phrase panta ta ethne, meaning all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Pantata ethne is the Greek there. That uh, one time it's used and it means Gentile individuals. Nine times it means people groups. And then eight times it's unclear whether it's meaning individuals or people groups. So we say this idea, God, when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, that means ethnos, which means ethnic groups. It's just simple as that. Well, Piper says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's not, it's sometimes, yes, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Now, for some people that might be like, wow, all this is so confusing, but the exciting thing about this is that we see, because it's used in different ways, it has different meanings, it shows that, that the individual is important to God, and that the people group is important to God, and the country is important to God, that they all are important. Isn't that nice to remind ourselves that God's just not saying, oh, I want Hispanics in heaven, I just want Uzbeks in heaven. He also says, I, I want you in heaven. I'm concerned about you and your ethnic group and your country or your nation. God is, is passionate about all of them. But we're going to try to break the key here. Well, what is the answer? What is the meaning of this nations that we find in the Bible? We're going to look that there's basically four big clues that help us. Actually, 
There's so many verses in the Bible related to this, but we're just going to take a peek at, at four of them. All right, and the first one is this idea of Abraham's, all the families of the earth will be blessed, which is used in Genesis chapter 12, and it's restated in the New Testament. From Genesis 12, 1 to 3, some people say this is the, the Great Commission was actually given in Genesis 12, okay? Because what does it say? Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, or some translations say, and through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is interesting in particular in that it doesn't say, and in you all the nations, all the ethnic groups. But it uses this word family. And families in the Greek New Testament and in Genesis 12 here in the Hebrew, uh, is a word that means tribes. And actually, most of the time, it means a group that is smaller than a tribe. So it's like a clan. So in you or through you, Abraham, through you and your descendants, namely Jesus, through Jesus in particular, all the clans, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so... This gives us a clue that when God says all the nations will be blessed, that he's just not talking about the political nations of the world. There's about 200 of those. And yes, some of them are very, very small. Wasn't it, there was a special on 60 Minutes about Monaco. I think that's a country, it's considered a country. And it's teeny. It's just a few square blocks. Uh, very wealthy, but very small. Okay. Um, but God is... His concern is more than just nations as we know it, those 200. If it was just those 200, we could say, oh, well, the job is done. We've made disciples in all the, na all the 200 nations. But we know his calling, uh, the ministry, the mission of the church goes beyond that to all the tribes, all the clans of the earth. And we mentioned, too, so some people say, oh, this is the Great Commission was first given way back in Genesis. That God didn't wait. Some people think, oh, at the end of Jesus' life, he gave the Great Commission to remind them of what he really wanted them to do. But no, all the way back here from the beginning, God's desire was to bless all the nations through Abraham, through the Jewish nation, and through his descendants. So some people say, oh, so the Jews are God's chosen people, and he loves them more than the rest of the world. No, in fact, in Deuteronomy, it says he picked them from all the people in the world, because they were the least. They were insignificant. And that's why he chose them, was because by choosing an insignificant, small, tiny group to bless the world through them, to do mighty things through them, the glory would go to who? To God. Yeah, so he, he does love them, but he doesn't love them more than the rest of the world. He picked them as his instrument, his instrument to bless the rest of the world, like a trumpet. He picked them, this instrument, to sound the call that all the nations could hear and know about God's love. So, the first clue we have is when Abraham 
God talks about blessing him and all the families of the earth. Then secondly, if we look at Paul, Paul was devoted to reaching more and more people groups, not simply more and more individuals. And we see this in Romans 15. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God. So when he talked about the promises to the patriarchs, when we looked at Genesis 12, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham, that same promise was repeated to his sons in the coming generations, to Isaac and Jacob, the sons of promise. And so it was through the patriarchs, that was what the promise was, of all nations being blessed, and that the Gentiles might glorify God. So Paul saw that, that his ministry was part of that, that he would serve the Jews, and that also the Gentiles would glorify God. Paul saw many Jews, he was called specifically the Gentiles, but he saw many Jews come to the Lord as well. And then in Romans 15, there's this very interesting passage. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. Now listen to this. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it's written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So what's interesting here is this, from Jerusalem to Illyricum is a huge area. It's gigantic. So how can Paul say this, that, what does he say here? Uh, it's always been my ambition to preach, but let's see. He says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way down to Illyricum. Well, that makes us wonder because it's a huge area, and we knew that uh, later he, he left Timothy in Ephesus and Titus, in Crete, both in that part, uh, and yet he says he fulfilled the gospel in the whole area. And in Romans 15, verses 23, a couple verses later, Paul goes on to say, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Okay, so not only does he say he's fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, but he says, I have no more work left. Well, how could he have done that in just the short time that he was there? Well, really the answer is in Paul's method and in his thinking. Okay, as Piper says, it means that Paul's conception of the missionary task, not merely the winning of more and more people to Christ, which he could have done very efficiently in these familiar regions, but it's in the reaching of more and more peoples or nations. His focus was not primarily on new geographic areas. Rather, he was gripped by the vision of unreached peoples. So the idea was, in that whole area, he had planted the seed that would grow and would reach 
those people groups, those ethnic groups. And that's how he could say, I've finished the work. His work was to start and plant those seeds that would grow and reach the rest of that group. In some cases, he may have known that that work would have then spilled over into another group. But it was to plant that initial seed, or in military terms, have that beachhead, a breakthrough in an area, so then the, the, the troops can spread out and conquer the whole area. So his thinking wasn't just, if he was thinking about, oh, my job is to get as many individuals as possible and win them to the Lord. It's all about individuals. Then he would just have stayed in the big cities, wouldn't he, where people are so plentiful. But we see Paul always moving on. And he did work in the big cities, but the idea was that they would take the gospel and spread it throughout the rest of these areas. So he thought of the task in terms of people groups, not just winning individuals, as many individuals. And for us today, if the church's mission was just to reach as many individuals as possible, then we should send workers to the places where people are most responsive and have big populations. So if people in Brazil, there's been a lot of Christians, a lot of uh, growth of the church in, in Brazil, well, let's send people to the biggest cities there and win more Christians if the goal is just people. But it's not. It's people groups and diversity, the ethne. And the reason for that, again, is it adds to God's glory. When there's all this diversity that's brought together, it brings glory to God. If it's just one, if it's just a bunch of Brazilians, oh, that brings God's gl God glory. But if it's several nations, that brings him even more, that all these different cultures would worship him. But then when every culture is there, it brings him maximum glory. And that's what the purpose of life is, to bring God glory. And God's purposes are to bring glory to the Godhead. So then... Another clue is what we see with John. John saw missions as being of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So really, this is kind of like saying, um, well, who wrote the book of Revelation? John. Okay. So this is like when you're reading a book and somebody says something and you're wondering, oh, how's that going to work out? How's that going to turn out in the end? Or wonder what they really meant. And then you go to the end of the book, and you see, oh, it turned out this way. Oh, so therefore, this is what they must have meant. So in a way, it's like cheating. We're peeking at the end to figure out the answer to our question. Is the mission just about individuals? Is it just about countries? Or is it about people groups? And we see at the end in Revelation 5, 6, and 9 that we just read, and I'll, I'll just go to verse 9 where they sang a new song. This is in heaven. And the, new, the song they sang was, You, the Lamb, speaking to the Lamb of God, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every lang language, and people and nation. So it's, delineating here what was meant by nations back when Jesus in the Great Commission. Wow, we see at the end that there's people from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. 
So it's not just political countries God's talking about, but we see here he's interested in every ethnic group being, being there. And he says, you purchased for God. I think we could translate that also. You purchased for the glory of God people from every tribe, language, people, and, act, and nation. <coughs> So Jesus' work here was to bring God glory, and it was from among every tribe. We see this again in one of my favorite passages in Revelation 7. This is a picture of heaven. And close your eyes for a moment, if you will, while I read this. Because this, this scene that I'm going to describe to you is one that you, if you're a believer, will one day personally experience. Okay? So think right today of what this is going to be like when your day comes and the Lord calls you to himself, John says this. He's given a vision of this amazing day. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were all wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. We're going to all experience that one day. I don't know if when it says we'll all be in white robes, I kind of doubt that. I think that's probably symbolic, meaning we'll all be washed clean of our sins. And probably we're going to be dressed, everybody's going to be in a different cultural costume or what, what they normally wear. And so we'll see people with turbans and Africans with bright colors and Indonesians with their famous shirts and Americans will be in flip-flops and, you know, uh, I don't know exactly, but uh, it's going to be awesome. There's going to be this diversity in, uh, in the worship maybe it will be in many languages even. They, it says they, they cried out in a loud voice. Uh, but it's going to be amazing. And we're going to look and we're going to see, wow, these people, there'll be people from thousands of years ago. Maybe they'll be, we'll see some aborigines and uh, we'll say, wow, I've never seen, look, the pygmies of Africa, right? that guy's a pygmy. And he's worshiping God with all of his heart. And we're going to be looking around, it's just going to be amazing. We're going to say, wow, what an awesome God. I remember the first time when I went to Kenya when I was a sophomore in college, I was uh, the first Mzungu, the first white student at a Bible college my brother was teaching at. And all the local kids used to like to come up and play with my hair. They'd never seen straight hair. And so they would, I, when I'd take a break at the soccer games, they'd come up, there'd be <laughs> ten hands playing with my hair. Oh, they loved that. Um, but I remember my... Uh, one of my close friends was a guy named John Job Conwat, and he'd worked in, uh, oh, I forget what country, but they, it's the country that had the pygmies, and he told me of all the adventures that he'd been on. He'd seen the pygmies, he'd uh, been bitten by a black mamba in a tree, and he fell out of the tree, but he, God spared his life, and, uh, and he had a very strong accent, and I remember the first time we prayed together. And I looked at him, and I, I said, man, that guy's life has been so different from mine. 
but he loves God so much, just like I do. God is his God. And I, it just exploded, expanded my view of how great God was when I see somebody really different from me having the same kind of relationship with God. And that's how it's going to be with us someday. It is going to be amazing. I can't wait for that day. And I hope that you're longing for it as well. Then last, one more of these four. The last of these four clues uh, would be Jesus when he gets furious at the temple. Okay? It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, you've made it into a den of robbers. Now this is a story we heard Jesus even made a, a, a whip out of rope and was knocking things over. This is as mad as we see Jesus get. Right, so what's the deal? Why does he get furious is the good word. I think he was furious. He was hot. Why was that? What gets Jesus worked up? What gets us worked up? Is it the same as what gets God worked up? Well, often we think it was the corruption. The fact that they were selling, you know, uh, doves and lambs that would be purchased to, to make a sacrifice, and they were selling them at exorbitant prices. So they were ripping off God's people, you know, their, their fellow Jews. They were ripping them off. That's what got a mad corruption. All right, but we look closer here, and what does he say? He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. So it's, it's that. It's a den of robbers. He is. The fact that they're robbing people. Exorbitant prices. That bothers him. But this other thing. What does it mean? My house is called a house of prayer for all nations. Well this is a picture of the temple. And that area outside the temple. Is called the court of the Gentiles. This here. And this here. The Gentiles weren't allowed in here, but this was their area. They were welcomed to come and worship the Most High God. And it appears that that's where the money changers and the people selling things had set up shop. And that would make sense then with what Jesus said, wouldn't it? Why he's so furious. The place where the Gentiles should be in worshiping, they can't get in because of all these people that are selling things at exorbitant prices and are prohibiting my children from worshiping me and bringing my father the glory he deserves and getting the blessing they come to want by coming to the temple. That's what he's furious about, people not being able to worship God like they want. So think about your own life. Have you ever been furious about that? Furious that there's some ethnic groups that missionaries have yet to go to and so they don't have the opportunity to worship God? Has that ever got you furious? You make little 
whip out a rope and go around your room whacking the bed. That is so wrong. Right? John, you getting worked up like that every now and then? Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That's what got Jesus furious when his people are prevented from worshiping. Yeah, it makes me say, oh God, change my heart. Help me to have that kind of heart of passion like you have, Lord. So, from these four clues, and there would be many others that we could use, we see this is the reality that, yeah, when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, he wasn't just talking about countries. He, he loves every country. wasn't just talking about individuals. He loves the individuals. And in fact, um, here, when it says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, um, some would say, yeah, what you, if, if we looked at that picture, our is he saying, oh, all the, all the individuals of the world? All the individuals of the world should be able to be in my temple. Well, they couldn't all fit, could they? Okay. Or all the ethnic groups of the world. Well, I think we say, no, what he was saying was representatives from all the nations. My house is to be a place where representatives from all the nations sh should be there. So he did have a concern for individuals. He did have a concern for countries. But the mission of the church is reaching those, but specifically defined as all the ethnic groups of the world. And so let's go back to the Great Commission again. As we look at it, one question that's important is, is it for us today, or was the Great Commission just for the original disciples? That's a pretty important question. Because if it wasn't for us, then we're scot-free. Hey, we, that's not, not part of our purpose statement. Well, this was the very issue in the late 1700s. William Carey was in England. He was a shoemaker and a uh, bivocational pastor. And with his leather scraps, he made a globe, and he was constantly praying for the world. And as he read the scriptures, he was convinced that this command was for him and for his church, and for the churches in England, and for the church around the world. And once he got up to share this with other pastors uh, in his denomination, and an older pastor stood up and said, young man, sit down. If God wants to reach the Gentiles, he'll do it without your help or mine. But he wasn't taken back by that. And even though pastors at that time, their main argument was that commission was given to Jesus' disciples. It doesn't apply to us. So William Carey, sit down and shut up. But instead, he wrote a book. And it got published, and it began to influence all of England and eventually all the world. And in it, he made the argument. He said, now wait a minute. If this command is only for Jesus' disciples, that's a bit of a problem because I guess then we should stop making disciples and we should stop baptizing because that was just for the original disciples and teaching them to obey, well, we might as well stop preaching and teaching, discipling people. 
And then this last sentence, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Till the very end of the age. Well, who would Jesus have in mind? If he had his, just his disciples in mind, they're not going to be around to the end of the age. Or was he, in fact, speaking to his disciples and through them all the other generations that would follow after them that would go until the end of the age? That's the only one that makes sense. So we know it is for us. And so we should be making disciples, baptizing, teaching, knowing and what a wonderful blessing that God is with us to the very end of the age. And especially we know as we're going about God's business, as we're doing what he told us, commanded here, that he's going to be with us as we do what he commanded so oh, on this too, another question we ask is, well, what, what does this mean? And in here, the main verb, often we think the main verb is what? Go. Actually, the main verb in this, in the Greek, is make disciples. And then there's three participle verbs, which are going, baptizing, and teaching to obey. But actually, because of the way the Greek is conjugated and I don't understand exactly how that works. I haven't gotten a Greek conjugation. But I read um, Robert Coleman, who's the expert on the Great Commission. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says, and I believe it, that because of the conjugation, the, the verb go actually becomes an imperative, a command. So the main command is make disciples. And the other command is to go. So go, make disciples as you're going. And the way you do that is by baptizing them and teaching them. And it's important here to recognize it's not just teaching them, but it's teaching them to what? Obey. That's a big difference, isn't it? It's easy to teach somebody, a new believer, oh, let me teach you about prayer. Let me teach you about sharing your faith. It's a whole different thing to teach them about praying and sharing their faith and being obedient in that. And that's what we're called to. But the central command here is make disciples. And this is the last thing that Jesus commands before he leaves the earth. And he does it to reiterate. This is so important. I don't, if you forget everything else I tell you, remember this. What I want you to be, out, be about from here on is making disciples. And to be honest, this is a tough passage. Because we say, wow, this is what Jesus wants to be about, us to be about making disciples. And another question we ask, he says, make disciples. As he was talking about make disciples, was usually we talk about discipleship is what? Is helping a believer to become more and more like Christ in every part of their life. That's how I define discipleship. Evangelism is, is helping someone that's a non-believer become a believer, right? So when Jesus said, go and make disciples, was he just talking about discipleship? I want you to go and find all the Christians and make them more Christ-like in every part of their life. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. Or was he saying... Go and make disciples, and by make disciples, I mean find people that aren't Christians, help them become Christians, 
and then help them become more and more Christ-like in every part of their life, learning how to obey all the commands I've given you. Yeah, it has to be that. He wasn't just saying, go and find, just go and disciple, do discipleship. By make disciples, he meant evangelize people and disciple them. And do it in such a way that they, in turn, will do the same. That'll be multiplying. Because there in Acts 1 it says, uh, Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. (coughs) So he's saying, after I leave, this is what's going to happen. The gospel is going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. (coughs) Excuse me to the very ends of the earth. One way to say it, a friend of mine said, you could say it this way, Jesus was saying we need to win, build, and send. Win people to Christ, build them up in their faith, and send them out to help other, to win, build, and send others. That sending might be sending them across the street, sending them next door to their neighbor, maybe sending them to another ethnic group. But this idea of multiplying healthy disciples is what Jesus was saying. And we, as we look at Acts, we see the way that happens best, the way you disciple people the best, the way you win and disciple people is through churches. So the question becomes, how are we to make disciples of all nations? And I know a few weeks ago I sent you a prayer request for this man on, on the right in the bed, Steve Smith. A number of years ago, we, he is the one that did Helen and I's training and becoming strategy coordinators for our work in China. He worked in China for many years among the Hani people, and they saw an amazing number. They got the Lisu people of China trained to share the gospel with the Hani and began seeing a multiplication of churches. And in recent years, he's been leading a movement to focus on reaching all the remaining unreached people groups. Uh, But he got very sick about a year ago and for the last year has um, just been fighting for his life. But he has continued to write and to speak in in um, December. I was at a conference and he wasn't able to attend because he was so weak, but he sent his message via video. And this is what he said, and this is something because I realized he had staked his life on this. That the message that he gave those that day, he said, we are to fulfill the promise of Acts. What is the promise of Acts? The idea that the gospel is going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He said, we are to fulfill it. We were commanded to fulfill it. And the way we do it is with the pattern of Acts. Multiplying disciples done by the power of acts. Desperate dependency on the Holy Spirit. That's how we make disciples of all nations. And to his dying breath, that's what Steve was about. We see in the book of Acts, the power was through the Holy Spirit. They were so dependent on the Holy Spirit. Many have said, oh, the book of Acts ought to be called not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
They were so dependent on what the Holy Spirit was saying and following him and the power they had through the Holy Spirit for miracles and guidance. And their pattern was that of multiplying disciples. Paul would leave somebody in an area and then say, my work is done there. Why? Because he knew that individual was in turn going to multiply their life and share with others and teach them how to multiply their life and share with others. And this leads me to two questions I, about a year ago I heard that have helped me so much. It's so simple, but it's by Peter Drucker, who's considered one of the great management gurus. But um, he's worked to, to help some churches, and uh, the, of, of the many things he's taught, this is what has been most helpful to me. He said there are two there are two important questions in life. Or maybe he says it's two important questions in business, but I think you can say these are the two most important questions in life, which you may not get it initially, but he says those questions are, what's your business? And secondly, how's business? So if you're a shoe salesman, he would say, ask you, what's your business? Oh, my business is to sell as many shoes as I can to people. And he would say, how's business? How are you doing at reaching your goal? What does that have to do with us? Well, I think in everything we do in life, we need to ask these questions. Whatever endeavor. As the church, we need to ask, what's our business? Jesus said it's to glorify him, to go and make disciples of all nations. So we have to ask, how's business? How are we as the church doing at that? How am I as an individual doing at that? And it can be very humbling, but we just need to look at the, the facts and then adjust. I want to talk briefly here. This is a, a graphic that kind of shows the status of, of world evangelization. World C stands for Christian. 33% of the world is Christian. Many of those are nominal, but if you had a piece of paper and you had to pick your religion, 33% would say Christian. Okay? And from this, there are 400,000 missionaries. But sadly, 72% of them are working in Christian countries, helping the church to multiply and grow, which is good. But that leads to the second part of the world. 38% of the world does have access to the gospel. There are churches and there are Christians, but they're not following God, although they have access. And that leads to world A, 29% of the world, about 2 billion people who don't have an opportunity to hear the gospel. They don't have Bibles, very few if any churches, very few if any believers. And one of the stats they use is less than 2% of their group is Christian. So we look at that and that can say, oh, also 25% of the world's missionaries go here to World B where they have churches and there's Christians, but people haven't believed yet. And only 3% of the world's missionaries go to the place where there isn't churches and there aren't Christians. Somebody said all the, all the easy places have been taken. There's a lot of truth to that. These are difficult places to live. And difficult because often, but not always, 
There's resistance to the gospel. It takes time. There's no Bible. The Bible has to be translated. Resources have to be developed. But the good news is, I mentioned in December, I went to this conference at Saddleback Church. It's called Finishing the Task. And they look at this world A, and they say, how many ethnic groups are there where there are no workers among them at all trying to plant churches? And when I was there two years ago, it was about 600 groups, which isn't that many out of, you say there's 16,000 people groups, some say 12,000, but only 600 were left, and they were getting smaller. Well, this year we came, and there was only 160-something left. And during the course of the three days we were at Saddleback, different agencies began calling ministry partners, and the remaining 168 got adopted. And what they meant by that is, in the next two years, we're going to try to get missionaries on the field trying to plant churches in that group. So it's not saying they're reached, but it's saying we're going to put somebody there. And that number got down to zero. Now, maybe in two years, some of those people say, well, we failed, and the number will go up to 10 or 20 or 50, and it'll fluctuate back and forth. But it was pretty significant that we are at a time in history like never before, that that number is getting down close. There's workers in almost all these places. So in that way, we're doing great, but only 3% of the workers are going to those kind of places, and that is sobering. This is church identification. The line we really, the red line is mainline denominations, Protestant denominations, and then the green line is evangelicals. And this is 2016, 2006, 1996, 1986. So 30 years ago, 27%, we had 27% evangelicals. And basically you have stayed pretty much the same. We've been in a slight decline down to 24% evangelicals. We're doing a whole lot better than the Protestant mainline divisions, but the churches stagnate has stagnated. The evangelical church in America has stagnated in growth over the last 30 years. That's humbling. Yeah, we're doing better than some, but we need to ask, what's our business? How's our business? And it's not just the church. We need to talk about it in terms of us. And in some way, there's, I, I don't want to say that all is bad. There's good things happening. And, and I believe God is at work. But I think when we think about the church, the evangelical church in America, evangelism is an area of real weakness. We're not winning as many people to the Lord. And I think more importantly, the thing we can control is how much sowing of the gospel we do. And that we're just not sowing enough seeds. In the book of Acts, you see, Paul and the disciples were taking the gospel everywhere and then sharing it with everywhere, in their homes, in the churches, in the workplace, in the marketplace. But many evangelical churches today, the number of times people are sharing is down. It's not very much. I met somebody recently who was telling me, oh, they've been out of college for like 20 years. I said, I haven't shared the gospel since I graduated from college. And there's many people like that in the evangelical church. And we need to say, how's business? Or what's our business? Okay, it's to make disciples. How are we doing? Lord, I need a lot of help. I'm not doing too good in this. 
and why. Some cases maybe we don't know how to share. We haven't practiced sharing. If that's our issue, then practice it. Go online, watch somebody do a simple presentation and memorize it. Maybe we don't know who to share with. Um, I don't know if I've done this before. In uh, Cornelius, when Peter went to Cornelius, it said Cornelius had gathered all of his friends and relatives. The Greek word was oikos. We have this saying, your oikos is your geo, your bio, your vakin, your vol. I said your geo, your bio, your vakin, your vol. Have you heard this before? Your geo is geographically, your neighbors. Your bio is bi- biological, your family and relatives. Your vok is vocational, your co-workers. And vol is voluntary organizations, friends that you meet at different clubs and things you're part of. So that's the place you can start your oikos. The gospel spreads most easily through your relationships, your families, your friends, co-workers, colleagues, people that you meet in organizations at soccer, your kids' soccer, whatever. Some say it's too hard or we're afraid. We're afraid of being rejected. We're not risk-takers. You know, I think a year and a half ago we did a, a survey of the youth, and that was the number one weakest area. I don't readily, I'm not, I rarely risk for Jesus. I rarely am willing to risk for God. And that goes back to us, their parents. Are we not, why are we not willing to risk take? For some, it's we've lost our first love. Or we've become selfish. We're just thinking about ourselves. Well, I know I'm going to heaven. Whether I share with other people or not, it's not going to affect that. So I'll just coast my way into heaven. Ask yourself that. Why, why am I not sharing the gospel as much as I should? As I know I should. As I want. Why am I not sharing the gospel as much as I want? It's been said the happiest people are those that share the gospel often. And the ones that I've known, that's been very true. Certainly in Asia, um, Bo and Cindy know Inkai. He's every day sharing with tens and tens of people. And he's so filled with joy. And he says that. He says all the time, oh yeah, the happiest people are the ones that share the gospel regularly. Then there's this important saying we've all heard. <laughs> what it means is if we keep doing what we've been doing, we'll keep getting the results we've been getting. It's pretty profound, actually. Okay, But it's true. If we don't stop and evaluate and say, what's my business? What's our business? How's business? If we don't stop and look at it and then... We have to admit sometimes, oh, God, it's not going like it should in this area. Well, if you just keep doing what you've been doing, you're, in most cases, you're just going to keep getting the same results. But we need to say, God, what do you want me to do differently? And really, it's our business, our purpose, to glorify and enjoy God. And it's not the only way we glorify God, but boy, 
God gets a lot of glory when somebody's life is transformed and they come and worship Him. They leave their old life with no purpose and no lasting joy and they find lasting joy and they find real purpose. And not only are they blessed, but man, it's wonderful. I, I can say one of the greatest joys in my life is sharing the gospel with people. And even on top of that, the first time I shared the gospel in Chinese with somebody, I mean, I never thought I was going to be able to learn Chinese. So that was an accomplishment in itself. But to share God's good news with a person that had never heard it before, man, I tell you, that had to be one of the happiest moments of my life. And to be able to do that in China for so many years, to share with people that had never heard, it is marvelous. And then to see someone believe and have their life and others around them transformed. I just want to conclude with a couple things. One is we need to realize evangelism has really changed. And this is a big topic. I'm just going to scratch the surface. But I just heard this recording the other day of a guy did all this research and they found, they asked people, non-Christians, what's least effective in drawing you to God? And they said, someone who's good at debating the issues about Christianity and someone who's good at telling what they believe. And I was shocked. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's all, when I was 20 years ago, or when oh, longer than that, 40 years ago when I was in college and learning how to share the gospel, that's what we focused on, is debating the issues, apologetics, and how to share what Christians believe. And now you're telling me to people those are the least effective things? Wow, the times have changed. We've got to wake up. This is a shift. Now what people, many people, especially younger people are saying, but not just younger people, what's most effective in drawing them to God is when someone listens to what they share about their beliefs. And then ask questions to understand it better. The good news is this is something we can all do. Is we can just start by saying, oh, what do, you, what do you believe? Oh, tell me more about that. Well, so what is, what do you, your religion, what do you have to do every week? And then any question that comes, you can just ask genuine questions. Be genuinely curious. And that's one of the most effective things this day. Just starting a conversation out of curiosity that's genuine. Yeah, and that's one of these, these alpha courses and things like it. Are, people are finding them to be very helpful. Uh, one of the things I was struck by, too, is they emphasize food a lot. And we're, we're, I think we're doing pretty good with that in the evangelical word, world. Uh, but then also they encourage their leaders not to correct people right away. If somebody says, oh, you Christians believe in three gods, just let it ride, let it ride. There'll be a chance to, sooner or later, you have an opportunity to talk about it. But just hear people and ask questions initially, and then the day will come. But then also they take people on a prayer retreat. They take non-Christians on a silence and solitude. Maybe next time Crossway has one, we ought to invite our friends. The Alpha Course has started doing that, and they're finding incredible results. Non-Christians go, they have time alone with God, and God speaks to them. Why wouldn't he? They're his children. He created them. He wants to draw them into his family. And he speaks to them. But, yeah, it's the good news that we need to be sharing. It is good news that 
before originally God created us to be in relationship with himself, he was holy and man wasn't. Man turned to do his own thing. But God longed to have that relationship back that he always wanted with man. So he sent his son to die for our sins on the cross. And if we will accept that and realize that there's no works that we can do to earn salvation, but by believing that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins and we're willing to turn away from our old life and put him in control of our life, we can have a relationship with God. So if there's anyone here today that says, you know, I really need to do that. I'm, I'm ready or I'm really serious about thinking about becoming a Christian. I'd encourage you to come up. I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards and talk more about what that means to become a Christian. But my two questions today are, what's your business? What's our business as the church? And how's it going? I think God wants it to go a lot better. And, and I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching to myself. Because we're missing out on so many blessings of when we share, our gospel, our, share the gospel with people. It is such a joy. And then to see people come to faith and grow, it transforms our own faith. And we all want to do it, but it's difficult. But I want to encourage you. Start, you can be as hungry for God as you want to be. If you'll just begin praying, saying, God, use me. Give me opportunities to testify of you. Give me opportunities to ask other people about their faith and begin turning strangers into acquaintances, acquaintances into friends. God, teach me how I can help bring people into your kingdom. Begin just with that prayer and an earnest heart, and God, he'll start making you hungry. You'll start wanting to read books and figure out, well, how do I do this? Talk to people that are doing it. But it starts with your heart and a desire to please God, to glorify him, and to be obedient to him. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And because it brings him pleasure and glory, as does every step of obedience in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just, Lord, we need your help. Lord, we want to be obedient, especially to the central commands that you give us to the purpose of bringing glory to you bringing people into your kingdom being obedient in our lives not because we have to to earn our salvation or measure up to somebody else or whatever but lord because we know when we're obedient to you when we live in the way that you've commanded us to we'll experience the most joy your kingdom will be built. You will be pleased. It's the best way to live when we live in obedience. So Lord, help each of us. We so much need your help. Lord, and give us a hunger. If we've become apathetic or just self-centered, show that to us, Lord, so we can repent of it and live a life worthy of our calling in you. It's for your glory and your kingdom we pray.
Amen.